and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the audio edition of the Weekly Roundup, where we examine some of the key developments and headlines pertaining to the asset and wealth management industry across Singapore, Hong Kong, and mainland China. This episode, we are looking at developments over the week of April 26 through 30, so let's dive in. Starting off with some APAC-wide developments. Broadridge, an investor communications and technology-driven solutions provider, reports that the size of long-term mutual fund assets held by third-party fund houses reached 3.8 trillion US dollars at the end of 2020, up nearly 33% from 2019, and driven largely by fundraising in China. Broadridge notes in their Distribution 360 report that assets accessible to third-party asset managers in China reached 1.5 trillion US dollars, up nearly 78% as a result of increased inflows, several blockbuster fund IPOs, and organic market growth. Similar accessible assets in Hong Kong and Singapore reached 269 billion US dollars and 148 billion US dollars respectively with Hong Kong ranking fourth in the region and Singapore coming in sixth across the markets covered in the report. Thematic, global, and North American equities were popular strategies over 2020, and Broadridge noted that the popularity of ESG investing proved to be a strong catalyst for partnerships, further estimating that the five-year compound average growth rate for ESG assets in Singapore through 2025 was estimated to be 30.2%, with a CAGR of 31% across the whole APAC region. Broadridge's methodology includes onshore and cross-border fund assets and excludes in-house assets such as assets managed by the fund management arm of an insurance company for its parent. Money market funds and in-house funds are also excluded from their analysis. Broadridge notes that the increase in online distribution of mutual funds in China, Hong Kong, and Singapore will become increasingly important, with increasing numbers of fund managers shifting their distribution, sales, and marketing activities to online platforms. Next up, Barrow Incorporated, a global provider of procurement intelligence and supplier compliance solutions, forecasts that the global mobile wallet adoption rate will increase to 75% by 2025, up from its current level of between 50 to 55%, and with APAC adoption leading the way, with estimated growth rates of between 38 to 40%. Demand for digital payments is high following the COVID-19 pandemic, with banks the world over looking to increase the adoption of digital payments and deposits, and Asia-Pacific is at the forefront of digital wallets and virtual banks. An example of this is the recent partnership between DBS, JP Morgan, and Tomasek, a Singaporean bank, a US bank, and a Singaporean sovereign wealth fund respectively, to develop an open industry platform to accelerate movements in payments, trade, and foreign exchange settlement. The platform is named Partior, which will seek to harness the benefits of blockchain and smart contracts to disrupt traditional cross-border payments, initially focusing on US dollar to Singapore dollar flows, with the intention of expanding to other markets and currencies later on, as well as complementing central bank digital currency initiatives and use cases. Moving on, a survey from EY, 
a global network of firms providing accounting and consulting services, indicates that clients across Asia-Pacific's wealth management space are more fickle in their choice of wealth manager than in other regions. In the 2021 EY Global Wealth Research Report, it was found that nearly 40% of wealth management clients in APAC were inclined to transfer their assets between wealth managers and that when they did, they transferred an average of 38% of their assets to another wealth manager. Additionally, only 43% of APAC's wealth management clients were likely to consolidate their assets with one wealth manager, compared to 49% for their global counterparts. Further findings showed that 76% of APAC wealth management clients were willing to pay more for a more personalized service. 70% were willing to share personal data with their primary wealth manager. 64% planned to use more digital and virtual tools. 61% planned to engage with their wealth management advisor virtually. 49% expected their relationship with their wealth manager to become less personal. 89% had personal sustainability goals whilst 59% felt that their wealth manager did not understand their values, and 88% believed it was important to consider ESG in their portfolios. The survey was undertaken across 21 territories and incorporated responses from 2,500 wealth management clients. Next up, St. James Place, a wealth manager operating in the UK and across Asia, released a report titled The New World of Wealth 2021 an independent research study which examined the impact of COVID-19 on wealth management habits and financial advice trends. For the report, 2017 interviews were conducted across Singapore and Hong Kong, with each wealth centre having a roughly equal number of interviews conducted in it, and respondents were aged between 25 to 54. Findings from Hong Kong showed that half of the respondents were happy with the amount of savings they currently have, 56% of respondents were more concerned about retirement planning following COVID-19, 62% felt that they were not on track to have enough money saved to live the lifestyle they wanted in retirement, 60% reported that COVID-19 had made them more cautious with their money, and 48% had increased their monthly savings since COVID-19 began. In Singapore, there were some similarities and differences with 60% of respondents happy with the amount of savings they currently have. 70% of respondents were more concerned about retirement planning following COVID-19. 54% felt that they were not on track to have enough money saved to live the lifestyle they wanted in retirement. 75% reported that COVID-19 had made them more cautious with their money, and 53% had increased their monthly savings since COVID-19 began. Given the relative level of affluence of survey respondents, coming from houses with at least 400,000 Hong Kong dollars or 70,000 Singapore dollars in annual income, the range of responses to COVID-19 are likely to be very varied, as with the response of asset and wealth managers and governments in its wake. Moving on, HSBC, a British bank, has announced it will launch a new institutional family office service in Hong Kong and Singapore, providing single-family offices in these markets with access to HSBC's investment banking specialists. Such access would provide services such as institutional market access, prime services, and private deals. 
HSBC noted that this model combines the family office and wealth management capabilities of HSBC's private banking unit with the leading expertise and reach of its global banking and markets division, enabling HSBC's family office relationships to benefit from the, quote, rich and complex range of solutions and opportunities offered by the investment bank, end quote, and enabling HSBC to better serve the growing needs and sophistication of family offices across the APAC region. HSBC also highlighted how they could assist family offices explore new and innovative ways of investing sustainably, and that in the coming decade, they forecast 1.9 trillion US dollars of wealth to be transferred intergenerationally across APAC, along with the continued growth in the number of ultra-high net worth investor families across the region. This announcement follows an earlier announcement in February 2021, where HSBC stated it would invest 3.5 billion US dollars over the next five years to accelerate the growth of its wealth and personal banking business in Asia and further its ambition to become the leading wealth bank in the region. The move demonstrates how banks see family offices as a key growth market in APAC, with many firms in the region being family-owned and family offices seen as needing support and guidance. It also enables HSBC to retain revenues which would otherwise be taken externally as ultra-high net worth investors build their own wealth management systems and structures. How this new unit performs in the face of competition from other wealth managers remains to be seen. Next up, on the topic of HSBC's success in Asia, the bank has released its quarterly reports for 1Q21, the first quarter since it announced its pivot to Asia. The results show that Asia wealth balances incorporating private bank client assets, retail wealth balances, HSBC Premier and Jade deposits, and family management distribution grew 18% compared to 23% globally. HSBC has also recruited more than 600 full-time employees, including circa 100 wealth managers in China, of the more than 5,000 it signaled it would recruit over the next five years. Other wealth managers in the APAC region also showed positive results, with UBS's wealth franchise in the region increasing 14% year-on-year net profit on the back of a 33% increase in group-wide assets. Net profit in the APAC region surged 21%, AUM increased 40%, loans rose 6%, and fee-generating assets grew by 9%. Asia-Pacific now contributed a quarter of group-wide profit, and net new fee-generating assets reached $9 billion, second-highest among UBS's four global regions, and net new loans reached $3 billion, also second among UBS's reported regions of operations. Credit Suisse's APAC Wealth Management franchise reported new net money of $5.4 billion and a 60% jump in wealth management-related pre-tax income over the first quarter of 2021. Adjusted client business volume, a metric which encompasses assets under management, assets under custody, and net loans, grew 41% year-on-year to reach $419 billion, US dollars, with assets under management increasing 26% year-on-year to $257 billion, US dollars, driven largely from greater China. In aggregate, Adjusted revenues for the region reached 1.6 billion US dollars, a 39% year-on-year increase, and now accounts for 19% of total group revenues. The growth across revenues and multiple business segments for these global wealth managers bodes well, 
for them and others, as several have ambitious targets for the region and are investing substantial resources to achieve them. Moving on, Fund Selector Asia, citing data from Cerruti, a US-based global research and consulting firm, notes that whilst robo-advisors across Southeast Asia have garnered users and AUM following the COVID-19 pandemic, banks remain the main fund distributors in the region, amounting to 56.6% of Southeast Asia, excluding Singapore, mutual fund AUM in 2020. This was down from 60.3% back in 2018. The attractiveness of banks as a one-stop shop for investors, providing access to funds, loans, insurance, and banking products is a significant component of this, along with the bond between investors and banks. Despite this, robo-advisors were seen as helping to increase public awareness around the benefits of investing, which ironically could drive more investors to banks, and it was noted that competition in the robo-advisory space was increasing as numerous players entered the market. Further, 56% of asset managers stated that they wanted to offer online investing facilities via their websites by 2024. Singapore was highlighted as a market where the robo-advisory space was growing, with regulatory efforts like MAS's fintech sandbox being cited, and local banks were also increasing their digital advisory capabilities, as covered in previous episodes. Indonesia was noted as being the most successful in terms of digital outreach, with asset managers utilizing digital platforms to gain market share in more remote areas. Though, despite this, banks still accounted for more than half of mutual fund AUM distributed in the market. Thailand's digital scene was noted as being in a nascent stage, with only a few robo-advisors in the market, though online investment platforms were seeing some success and traditional asset managers were developing their own digital platforms. Finally, Malaysia has seen eight companies receive digital investment management licenses, and digital investment managers have seen their AUM increase to 114.5 million US dollars in 2020, compared to less than 20% of this amount in 2019. Moving up to Singapore, Fine News Asia reports that Philip Capital, an independent Singapore-based fund manager, has appointed its first head of ESG strategy. Philip Capital noted that the overall trading value of its ESG ETFs increased 100% as of mid-April 2021, compared to over all of 2020, whilst the AUM of their ESG funds breached 500 million US dollars. Philip Capital stated that it would work with its UK counterpart, King & Shackson Asset Management, to deepen its ESG integration of ESG considerations into its Singaporean products. Currently, only one Philips Capital product in Singapore has ESG considerations, and it is not considered ESG-centred. Whether their new ESG strategy head brings about an increase in ESG products and subsequent inflows of ESG assets under management remains to be seen. Moving on. Aberdeen, an asset manager headquartered in Scotland with a strong presence in Singapore and other parts of Asia, will remove the vowels in its name to become Aberdeen, as reported by Fund Selector Asia. This follows the announcement that Phoenix Group, a British insurer, will buy the Standard Life Insurance brand, which purchased Aberdeen in 2017. 
the rebranded Aberdeen will be used by the asset manager for all client-facing business across the globe and was cited as marking the next stage in reshaping the business and its future-focused growth strategy. The CEO of Aberdeen, Mr. Stephen Bird, stated that the new brand built on the heritage of the asset manager and is, quote, modern, dynamic, and, most importantly, engaging of all our client and customer channels, end quote. The rebranding will take place over 2021. Industry commentators have had interesting reactions to the change, with one noting that, quote, the new Aberdeen name will likely leave investors feeling dazed and confused, end quote, and another predicted that in a month or two, the brand would revert back to standard life. Time will tell whether the vowless Aberdeen brand lasts and if it leads to greater success across APAC and globally. Next up, the Monetary Authority of Singapore has warned of new risks being formed by virtual assets such as cryptocurrencies and variable capital companies and has urged financial institutions to reinforce their defences against money laundering and terrorism financing, as reported by CityWire Asia. Specifically, Lu Xiaoyi, an assistant managing director for policy, payments, and financial crime at the regulator and central bank, noted that from an AML and ATF perspective, cryptocurrencies pose higher risks over other assets given the, quote, speed, anonymity, and cross-border nature of the transactions they facilitate, end quote. Further noting that financial institutions looking to enter digital asset services should adopt the necessary controls to ensure risks are effectively mitigated. As increasing numbers of asset and wealth managers look to meet investor demand for digital assets and financial institutions build infrastructure to handle the middle and back office aspects, these considerations are likely to be watched intently by the industry. For VCCs, a recently launched fund structure in Singapore which enables funds to be established as limited liability entities and as a standalone fund or under an umbrella fund structure, the separate legal personality of the structure was highlighted by MAS as being potentially conducive to illicit uses, with MAS stating that they were assessing the higher risk aspects of this and planned to undertake thematic inspections to test the anti-money laundering and anti-terrorism financing for VCC structures. Since its inception in January 2020, more than 260 VCCs have been established in Singapore, and it is seen as a key component of driving Singapore as a global fund centre. Another initiative to drive Singapore as a full-service asset management and domiciliation hub from MAS is the creation of a new partnership with the asset management industry in the city-state. This partnership will be named the Singapore Funds Industry Group and will comprise fund managers and service providers and will work closely with fund managers to support fund operations over its life cycle in areas like fund structuring and setup, fund administration, regulatory reporting, tax advisory, and fiduciary oversight. The group plans to identify emerging industry trends and formulate strategies to develop the local asset management ecosystem. The group will comprise four working groups, infrastructure and innovation, policy, capabilities and training, and promotion and advocacy. The infrastructure and innovation working group will monitor market developments and spur innovation to transform the value chain. The policy group will provide advice and recommend improvements to regulatory, 
legal, and tax frameworks to better serve the needs of fund managers and investors. The Capabilities and Training Working Group will focus on building a deep pool of fund specialists and directors in such areas as product development, administration, distribution, and fund oversight and governance. Finally, the Promotion and Advocacy Group will raise the global profile of Singapore as a leading asset management and fund domiciliation hub through outreach engagements with industry participants. The co-chair of the Singapore Funds Industry Group, Ms. Gillian Tan of MAS, stated that the group would, quote, maximize synergies across players from various industries to deepen Singapore's value proposition as a leading international funds hub, end quote. Further noting in the MAS press release announcing the formation of the group that Singapore currently boasted in excess of 1,000 fund managers. Assets under management had grown at a compound average growth rate of 11% over the five years to end 2019 when they reached 4 trillion Singapore dollars, and that areas such as green and sustainable finance, technology, and innovation could provide scope for growth in the future. How the newly formed group helps drive developments in these areas will no doubt be watched avidly within and without Singapore. Rounding out fund management developments in the Lion City, IMAS, the Investment Management Association of Singapore, has launched a Sustainable Investing and MAS Guidelines on Environmental Risk Management module on their online portal, the first ESG module released by the association. The module was created in conjunction with the IMAS Environmental Risk Management Working Group, and seeks to provide asset managers with an introduction to sustainable investing, along with insights on the key factors driving sustainable investment, the various methods to practice sustainable investing, and the challenges of ESG adoption in Asia, among others. Additionally, the module dives deep into MAS's guidelines and is supplemented with case studies to facilitate application by the industry. As Singapore takes steps to bring a greater focus on green and sustainable finance across its asset and wealth management industry, ensuring that industry professionals are adequately trained in these areas is likely to be a crucial component as to its success in these endeavours. So it is great to see that IMAS has its first ESG learning module to help in this regard. And on the subject of ESG, Ignites Asia reports that Singapore is closing the ESG gap with Hong Kong citing moves by asset managers in the Lion City, including Manulife Investment Management, Amundi, and KKR, to hire senior ESG staff, and developments like Schroeder's establishing a regional centre of excellence for sustainability in October 2020, along with initiatives from MAS, such as the granting of up to $2 billion US dollars to asset managers that have determined Singapore to be their APEC sustainability hub. These developments have translated into Singapore launching ESG-related mutual funds at a faster rate than Hong Kong, with 11 such launches undertaken this year at time of recording, compared to Hong Kong's reported three, though it has over 50 SFC-approved ESG funds at time of recording. Despite this, Hong Kong is not yet beaten, with Ignites Asia noting that some analysts highlight Hong Kong's earlier moves around ESG disclosure and stronger ESG investing framework, keeping it a contender. The Hong Kong Exchange introduced mandatory ESG disclosure requirements back in December 19, and the territory has established a Green and Sustainable Finance Cross-Agency Steering Group, helmed by the SFC and Hong Kong Monetary Authority, 
which announced in December 2020 that climate-related disclosures would be made mandatory by 2025. Further, in October 2020, the SFC proposed climate risk disclosure guidelines for asset managers, though as noted in a previous episode, the industry has pushed back on these as they seek clarification. These efforts appear to have paid dividends, with a recent report from Morningstar, a data provider, ranking Hong Kong fourth most sustainable stock market globally, whereas Singapore was ranked 22nd. Whilst Singapore currently lacks an ESG labelling framework for funds, MAS has published a consultation paper on green finance taxonomy for local financial institutions, and recently stated its intention to examine an ESG product labelling regime. The more flexible approach of Singapore is appealing for some asset and wealth managers, with a range of international green and sustainable reporting frameworks able to be utilised, compared to Hong Kong, which emphasises a specific set of climate-related financial disclosures. As investors across Asia-Pacific increasingly demand greater ESG, green, and sustainable finance products and investments, it will be interesting to see how these two asset and wealth management centres adopt disclosures to help facilitate this investment, and how asset and wealth managers respond to their unique approaches. And on the subject of Hong Kong, JP Morgan Asset Management and Amundi, an American and French asset manager respectively, are both in contention to acquire the 2.6 billion US dollar mandatory provident fund business that Vanguard will abscond from as it exits the Hong Kong market. The move to claim Vanguard's MPF business comes after the firm announced it would be leaving Hong Kong and other APEC markets to focus on China, and the decision last month to liquidate its six-fund, circa 600 million US dollar ETF business in the territory by 10 May 2021 as covered in an earlier episode. At time of recording, Hong Kong's MPF comprised 407 approved constituent funds, 319 approved pooled investment funds, 27 MPF schemes, 14 approved trustees, and had AUM of 1.17 trillion Hong Kong dollars. Neither JP Morgan Asset Management nor Amundi currently has products in the default investment scheme space, products in which are passive funds and the acquisition of Vanguard's MPF products would give them a boost in this space, possibly launching more passive funds and products in Hong Kong and across APAC. Both JP Morgan Asset Management and Amundi participate in Hong Kong's MPF space, managing 33.38 billion Hong Kong dollars and 38.37 billion Hong Kong dollars in AUM respectively. Whomever emerges victorious will be in a prime position, as the acquisition of the MPF business would serve to strengthen the ties between the firm which wins the business and the MPF scheme sponsors. Next up, Nikkei Asia reports that HSBC, following their strong first quarter 2021 profit, as covered earlier this episode, is assessing wealth management acquisition opportunities across Asia in order to accelerate its pivot to the region, with the CEO of HSBC, Mr. Noel Quinn, stating that the bank was looking at opportunities at different stages of evaluation, and that the acquisitions would be, quote, primarily focused on building out product capabilities or distribution, end quote, and that they were looking in Hong Kong, China, Singapore, and India, among others. Mr. Quinn further noted that if there were any acquisitions, 
they would be, quote, bolt on small portfolios of businesses, end quote. With City withdrawing from several APAC markets, among others, those that were thinking HSBC may acquire some of the banking assets in those markets were corrected when the CFO of HSBC stated that very few of the retail banking assets were seen as a, quote, good fit, end quote, for HSBC. As covered in previous episodes, HSBC is looking to invest an additional $6 billion US dollars in wealth management to drive double-digit growth across APAC. With wealth balances in the region surging 18% over first quarter 2021 and adding 600 wealth managers in the area, including 100 in China, out of a target 2 to 3,000 within the next four years. Asia now accounts for 60% of HSBC's pre-tax profit, and the increased investment in the area is likely to further grow this contribution. Finally, for Hong Kong, an executive at Standard Chartered, a British bank, believes that foreign banks will be at a disadvantage to their mainland counterparts with regards to the current proposed framework for the Greater Bay Area's Wealth Management Connect program, as reported by Ignites Asia. Rose Kay, a managing director at Standard Chartered based in Hong Kong, believes that foreign banks will be impeded compared to mainland banks as they lack the same client networks. This could be especially telling as the Wealth Management Connect framework currently prohibits banks from soliciting or advising on any fund, nor can they undertake any activity which would be perceived as, quote, actively promoting its wealth management scheme services, end quote, when opening client accounts. As mainland investors can only open one bank account under the Wealth Management Connect scheme, the big six Chinese banks in the Greater Bay Area, Bank of China, ICBC, China Construction Bank, Bank of Communications, the Postal Savings Bank of China, and Agricultural Bank of China, have nearly 8,000 branches between them, with all bar Bank of Communications having in excess of 1,000 branches, whilst Standard Chartered only has 14 branches across two cities in Guangdong province. Moving up to China. The People's Bank of China, along with four other regulators, have notified several leading Chinese technology companies, including Tencent Holdings, Didi Chuxing Technology, and JD.com, that their apps should no longer provide financial services beyond payments, as reported by the Wall Street Journal. Following a reported three-hour meeting, the regulators notified the technology companies that the bundling of financial services under their apps obscures fund flows into various products, which creates risks for the wider financial system. Should regulators' efforts come to fruition, the impact on the business models of these tech companies would be substantial, with the recent example of Ant Financial being a key example of this for the industry. The regulatory revamp of Ant Financial was covered in an earlier episode, and included the curtailing of its flagship Yuabao Money Market Fund. Following the move by Chinese regulators to force Yuabao to reduce its size, Fitch Ratings believes that this may have spillover effects into the wider fund management space in China, with many domestic financial and non-financial corporations needing to find alternative funding sources. Additionally, Fitch also noted their belief that the profitability of asset managers who have large funds may also be weakened if caps on fund sizes are implemented across the industry. This has happened in limited cases previously, 
where fund managers have capped the IPO subscription amount of funds that drew too much attention from investors. The impact on the drop in Yuobao's assets under management is already being felt by Tian Hong, its fund manager, which has lost its position as China's most profitable asset manager to eFund after ranking first for the previous three years. This also follows a period over 2020 in which several asset managers increased their profit levels by over 100%, generally on the success of massive fund launches and Chinese investor demand for equities funds. Whilst the main attention of regulators appears to be focused on the matter of online lending and deposit taking, areas which China's state-owned banks regard as their exclusive purview, it remains to be seen whether there is any spillover into areas such as fund distribution, which would potentially impact the distribution strategies of domestic and foreign asset and wealth managers, as well as other companies looking to get into the fund distribution or investment advisory space. Banks have traditionally been the arbiters of fund distribution in China, so their success in reigning in tech companies' lending and deposit-taking practices may embolden them to drive out the upstart competition from this space as well. Next up, BNP Paribas, a French bank, has filed with the CSRC to establish a brokerage firm in China, as reported by Ignites Asia, following their earlier reporting back in November 2020 that the firm was intending to seek a brokerage license and merge its existing onshore asset management team into it. This application, if granted, would be a return to China's securities industry for BMP, which left a securities joint venture back in 2007, and it is believed that the application is for 100% control of the securities firm. The asset management arm of BMP Paribas already has an onshore WIFI with a QDLP license, and it is expected that the staff working in this WIFI would be merged into the new brokerage unit if the license is granted. BMP Paribas Asset Management also holds a 49% stake in a fund management company joint venture, HFT Fund Management, and it is uncertain how the granting of a securities license would impact BMP's relationship with this unit, or whether BMP Paribas would look to sell its stake in the fund management company to focus exclusively on providing services under its newly granted securities venture. So, those are the main headlines and developments for the week of April 26 through 30. From our perspective, some of the regional developments were quite interesting, if somewhat unsurprising. For instance, the findings from the EY survey that wealth management clients across APAC were more fickle with their choice of wealth manager is fairly well known across the industry. In the ESG space, the developments down in Singapore and how some industry commentators believe that it is closing the gap with Hong Kong is also quite interesting. I believe back in 2020, the CFA Institute had a survey which showed that in Singapore, 6% of fund professionals were proficient in ESG, and 11% were being trained on how to incorporate ESG into their analysis. The same survey also showed that 40% of firms in Singapore said that they employed ESG analysts, so the steps taken by IMAS to develop the ESG learning module, plus steps taken by industry players such as Schroeder's or UOB Asset Management, the former which has established a center of excellence for sustainability in Singapore, and the latter has launched a sustainability academy, bodes well for the development of ESG, 
and green and sustainable finance in Singapore when coupled with a lot of the regulatory initiatives that are being put forward. The announcement from several global wealth managers as to the increase in flows and assets under management across their APAC units is interesting and also provides good justification for the amount of money and the attention that the region is receiving from a lot of these global players. And up in China, how the current standoff between regulators and technology firms plays out, whether regulators are content with removing technology companies from the online lending and deposit-taking side of the business, or whether they start encroaching into the fund distribution or investment advisory side as well, will be quite interesting to watch. However, those are just our thoughts. Let us know your thoughts in the comments as to whether there were any topics that we should have covered. If you enjoyed this episode, do give us a like, share, and subscribe for future content. If you didn't enjoy this episode, thank you for sticking around this long, and let us know in the comments which topics and developments we should have covered. From Three Lions Asset Wealth Management Advisory, thank you for tuning in. We hope you join us next time.